if I had been born a century or more before, before Marconi invented radio, before television, I might have wound up as a ward of the state. I can confirm that Bob Costas is not a ward of the state. Because I'm pretty good at this one little thing, and it's turned out okay for me. Yeah, that's a bit of an understatement. Broadcasting has turned out more than okay for Bob Costas. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey, the obstacles overcome, plan Bs, terrible first jobs, and the passion to push through to pursue a dream. Honestly, there really wasn't much of a before the cheering started for Bob Costas. He went straight from college to a radio job in a major market, St. Louis. But before he became a fixture in our homes on TV, which he's been for some 40 years, he announced minor league hockey, basketball in the old ABA league, even subbed as the host on a Bowling for Dollars show in Syracuse. And it all started at his home, growing up on Long Island. Can you recall how early there was a conversation between you and your family of, this is what I want to do, and this is what I'm going to go for? I don't recall specific conversations, but I do recall being fascinated by the broadcasters and interested in them nearly as much as I was interested in the players and in the games. To me, they were the soundtrack of the games, and the experience was not complete without an announcer letting you know what was going on. And I was lucky enough to grow up in New York, late 50s and through the 60s, a golden era of broadcasting in New York. Marty Glickman, the young Marv Albert, Lindsey Nelson uh, on the Mets, Mel Allen and Red Barber working together on the Yankees. Uh, And for a very brief period of time in the early 60s, little more than a year, we lived in Los Angeles and then returned to New York. But during that period of time in Los Angeles, I was one of those millions, to hear them tell it, although I haven't heard all millions of them, but it seems like there are millions who listened to Vin Scully on transistor radio. So I listened to the musical pacing of Vin Scully calling Dodger games. And so like many, many other kids of my generation, if I threw a, a ball off a stoop or was shooting baskets even by myself, in the schoolyard or playing wiffle ball, I wasn't just pretending to be Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays. I could hear Mel Allen or Red Barber or Vin Scully in my head. And then later on, luckily, growing up in New York, you have two teams. You have the Yankees and the Mets by 1962. You have the Giants and then eventually the Jets, uh, the Knicks and the Rangers in basketball and hockey. So you have all of that right there. But as it turned out, my dad was an inveterate gambler. And so he had more than a fan's interest in what was happening in games beyond New York. So he would send me out to the driveway with the keys to his car, not to take it for a spin around the block, but to turn the key just far enough, not to turn the motor over, but to turn on the dashboard lights and fiddle with the radio. And I learned to do it with the precision of a safe cracker, moving it up and down the dial and picking up distant broadcasts and a lot of major league baseball teams, especially, and in some cases, basketball teams, most football games were in the afternoon then, 
But a lot of NBA teams and most baseball teams had their games on 50,000 watt radio stations. So if the atmospherics were right on a given night, you could hear Bob Prince from KDK in Pittsburgh or Ernie Harwell from WJR in Detroit or Wait Hoyt, teammate of Babe Ruth, who then was calling Cincinnati Red Games on WLW in Cincinnati or Harry Carey and Jack Buck on KMOX in St. Louis. So the reason I was out there was to get the scores and bring back the report to my dad so we could see how his bets were going. But the byproduct of that was that I was by osmosis kind of internalizing the styles of all these different broadcasters. And so as a 10 or 11 year old, I think I took note of how distinctive they all were and the differences in their styles. And I think it was at about that point that I said, uh, if I can, I'd like to do this for a living. I still recall WBZ, I think. I, the Rangers yeah. and Knicks were on WHN, right? And so they were, I was right near WHN. And so you could hear like the Ranger games and then just go down a little bit and hear some Bruins of the hated Bruin games. It was great to hear your own teams play, but to hear a team from out of town, that was exotic. It almost felt as if there was something clandestine about <laughs> it. And there was a romance to it the distance, the crackle and static, the idea that you were in on something that most of your friends were not, that was different. And I'm not saying better. Sometimes when people of a certain age recall something that younger people don't, do not have within their frame of reference, the younger person's response is, oh, you're saying things ain't as good as they used to be. No, in many cases, they're better. But one of the unintended, perhaps, consequences of being able, if you want, to watch every game, anytime, or if not the entire game, highlights of every game, often accompanied by local announcers' calls, is that that fascination with distance, that idea that you're eavesdropping, that's gone away. That was, that was a casualty of, of modern technology. Can you tell me about the coach in high school who advised you that perhaps your future was not on the field, but in the booth? He was a perceptive man. His name was Chuck Orant, and he was the math teacher. You know, all coaches then, and I assume many of them now, they're social studies teachers or math teachers or phys ed teachers, whatever. Uh, and then they picked up a little extra cash uh, for coaching whichever team. And he had actually been in the Pittsburgh Pirates chain in the late 40s or early 50s, back when the minor leagues went all the way down to D-ball. Uh, he was a pitcher. I don't think he got ever, ever got higher than C-ball, but he had played professional baseball. So that gave him some standing in the eyes of his players at Comac High School on Long Island. And I tried out for the team uh, as a second baseman, which would be my natural position. And I wasn't bad with the glove, and he cited that. And when he cut me, and as I recall, I was the last guy cut. And he said, I'd like to keep you on the team. You know more about the game than anybody else here. And you're not bad with the glove, but I don't think you can hit your weight. And I don't think you weigh 120, which wasn't far from true when I was 16, 17 years old. And then he said in the next breath, let me ask you something. Have you ever thought about broadcasting? Because you're sure a talkative guy. And I said, you know, that's pretty much all I think about. And then he said with complete clarity, good, try that because you can't help this team. 
that's the nicest rejection or, yeah. or uh, cut that's ever happened in the, in the world of sports. Absolutely. Uh, and we actually had a guy on the team at Comac High School, class of 1970, who pitched in the majors. His name was Don DeMola. He was drafted by the Yankees, then traded to the Expos organization. And in the mid-70s, got up to the big leagues and had a couple of good seasons back-to-back in middle relief and then blew out his Achilles covering first base in a spring training drill. And that was the end uh, of his big league career. Still lives around Comac. And I've been in touch with him. And sometimes uh, I've invited him to come to games that I'm calling Met games or Yankee games. And sometimes someone will stop by the booth or I'll introduce him to somebody. And his comment after they walk away, if he's intersected with them, would be like, yeah, he got me. He homered off me in Philly in 1976. Or I introduced him on one occasion to Joe Torre. And when Joe walked away, he goes, he's on my list. Struck him out of <laughs> K Stadium, 1975. At that point, as you're getting ready to go off to college, because of Marty Glickman and Marv Albert, was Syracuse already established as the path for sportscasters? Or was there any chance you might go elsewhere? I think it was getting to that status. Uh, Andy Musser, who had a long career in Philadelphia uh, and did some work for CBS, had also gone there. Hank Greenwald, uh, who was a longtime radio guy with the Giants and briefly uh, with the Yankees. Hank Greenwald had gone there. Ted Koppel had gone there, different path in broadcasting. Dick Clark uh, had come out of Syracuse. And then there was Marty Glickman and Marv Albert. I read about Marty and Marv in a New York Nick yearbook during my junior year, as I recall it, in high school. And I did a little research and found out that Syracuse had the esteemed Newhouse School of Public Communications. And I thought, A, they play big time sports. And so if I'm going to be on the campus radio station, I'll have good games possibly to be part of. Uh, it was good enough for Marty and, and Marv. And academically, they seemed to be in good stead with the Newhouse School. So all things considered, this is where I'll apply. Uh, and I was accepted to other places, but I knew that if Syracuse said yes, that's where I was going to go. And things turned out pretty well. Did you start working at the campus radio station right from the get-go? Amazingly. I get there late August, early September of 1970. And by October of 1970, I'm doing my first broadcast. Not play-by-play yet. Didn't get to do play-by-play until my sophomore year. But I was doing five-minute sports reports and occasionally news stuff, anything to get on the air uh, and to try and get better at what I was doing. And all you had then were little cassette tapes, which didn't produce the most fulsome sound anyway. But when I listened, what I would do is I'd like have my roommate in the dorm, put the cassette recorder next to the radio and record the five minute broadcast I was doing. Then I would come back and listen to it. And I sounded so tinny and thin and still had vestiges of a New York accent, central New York weather, you know, that kind of thing. And it was kind of disheartening. I said to myself at 18, I don't know that I'll ever be good enough to do this and make a living from doing it. And a couple of years after that, I remember listening to Al Michaels uh, on the World Series. He was the young voice of the Cincinnati Reds and the Reds got to the series in 72 against Oakland. And the setup then was that NBC would take one announcer from each team and pair that announcer 
with Kurt Gowdy. And so here's 26, 27-year-old Al Michaels doing the games with Kurt Gowdy, and I'm watching and listening to him. And at this point, I'm 20. And I say to myself, there is no chance that I can be half as good as this guy in five or six years. I'm doomed. But I guess things turned out all right. So it seems like there were times at Syracuse that you were wondering, is this going to work out or how is this going to work out? Yeah, I, I never could have anticipated that I would be as fortunate as I turned out to be. But to be honest, I was encouraged by people who were around the station. You know, you have uh, advisors from the faculty. And I had a speech professor who encouraged me. And he said, I've been around here a long time and you're going to have to work at it. But you have some natural ability uh, for this, as much natural ability as anybody who's come through here uh, in the last decade or so that I've been here. And that encouragement kept me from getting too down on myself. And my relationship with that professor, Professor Stan Alton, who passed away a few years ago, uh, but he was legendary at Syracuse University. And my relationship with him was such that even many years later, after I'd been on network television for 25, 30 years, he might still call me or drop me a note, usually with uh, an attaboy aspect to it. Caught the broadcast, you were really great, et cetera. But occasionally with, you know, you went on too long with that story. Or uh, there wasn't enough bounce in your voice. I like it better when you seem to be more engaged. So he was still critiquing me. I'd be, you know, 50 years old and he was still critiquing <laughs> me. <laughs> Listen those, to me, son, or you'll never make it. Those are the guys who can do that, though. That's right. Yeah, that, but that's done with love, no doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. So you're at Syracuse, and all of a sudden, you are announcing minor league hockey games. How did that gig come about? Well, I was entering my senior year, fall of 1973, and a classmate and friend of mine, Andy McWilliams, who was a couple of years ahead of me, had done the games for the Syracuse Blazers in the old Eastern Hockey League, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot is based on. He had done their games and was prepared to do the following season when all of a sudden he lands the job with the Cincinnati Stingers, I think they were then called, in the old World Hockey Association. So that was a big step up. He moves to Cincinnati. He's on WLW. He's still around Cincinnati, broadcast a whole lot of different sports there. So that was a big break for him. But it came barely two weeks before the start of the season. And the station, WSYR, which was a television and radio dual operation, uh, wasn't in a position to do a nationwide talent hunt. And since they were offering only 30 bucks a game and $5 a day meal money on the road, it was doubtful that they could have attracted some top-notch talent. So they asked Andy, what do you suggest? And he said, well, you know, this buddy of mine at Syracuse, Bob Costas is pretty good. So I went down to the office of the general manager of the station and I took with me the only tape I had, which was a basketball game on the campus station between Syracuse and Rutgers, which I had done the year before. And I didn't exactly lie, but the way I phrased it was, I don't happen to have any hockey tapes available right now, but I think I can do hockey at least as well as I do basketball. And he listened to the tape and he said, good, you're hired. And then I had, you know, the better part of two weeks to figure out how the hell to broadcast a hockey game. 
And I guess I faked it well enough for the first couple of months until I got the hang of it. And what are those two weeks like? Obviously, you're known for your preparation. Are those two weeks, I mean, are you sleeping or is, is it all about the first broadcast, the first hockey broadcast? Or were you able to kind of relax a little bit and say, you know, I, I do have some talent. I'll be able to do this. Well, I like hockey, but I'm not really a hockey guy. And at that point in my life, I'd only been to two hockey games in my entire life. So I didn't have as much of a feel for the game as I would have if it was baseball or basketball or a number of other sports. So what I did was I enlisted a friend of mine, also a student at Syracuse, and I kind of abandoned my classes uh, for a week or so. And we went to any hockey game that was within driving distance. Some teams were playing exhibitions or whatever. And I would sit upstairs in the press box with this guy and he would point things out to me, including the rules. I, I wasn't exactly sure what constituted icing and what didn't or what was a pass across two lines. But he also suggested phrasing to me. And, and I wrote these things down and I, I tried to uh, I tried to absorb as much as I could. And I guess I was a pretty quick study. Uh, it might have been a little choppy at the beginning, but about a month into it, I was OK. It might seem like a ludicrous question to ask, understanding how many uh, major league games you went on to announce in your beloved baseball and, and, and basketball and Olympics and, and all the different uh, avenues where your career has gone. But is there anything learned in that one year of doing minor league hockey in Syracuse that is a common thread that kind of propels you into your career or that you used that lesson learned from that first year much later on? I don't know that it was specifically from that first year. Um, I think it was the entire experience at Syracuse, the value of preparation. That was drilled into me by the professors. It was drilled into me by what I knew of Red Barber and Vin Scully. Uh, Red had written a couple of books about his broadcasting career, and almost every other page stressed the importance of preparation. You know, he was famous for his attention to detail. In the early days of baseball broadcasting, all the games were on the radio. And so he would take an egg timer into the booth, a three-minute egg timer, or maybe it was two minutes, and he'd turn it upside down every time he gave the score. Mm -hmm. And if he noticed that the sand had gone through the egg timer and he hadn't mentioned the score since the last time, that would remind him to do it again. Because you know, you didn't have the score bug that you have now when you're watching a game on television, people listening on the radio, you had to constantly remind them of what the score was. Uh, he was that attentive to detail. So I think what I took away from it was just the importance of preparation. And for those hockey games, I studied very, very hard, uh, not just the Syracuse Blazers, but as much as I could learn about the entire roster of all the visiting teams. Um, and I think that preparation helped me. Uh, because at least I could tell a story or, or work in a fact or an anecdote here or there uh, to make up for any deficiencies I might have had in the flow of the play-by-play -play until I got better at the play-by-play, -play, which, as I said earlier, luckily came pretty quickly. One of the iconic radio stations you mentioned earlier in terms of stations you would listen to while living on Long Island was KMOX out of St. Louis. And right out of college, you end up there. Is there some sense of... I can't believe this. You know, I'm just out of oh, school yeah. and uh, I've died and gone to heaven. 
just an amazing bit of good fortune. My roommate during my sophomore year at Syracuse was a guy who, um, as we're doing this podcast, I just had lunch with him today. Uh, one of my closest friends for some 50 years now, Roger Holstein. Roger Holstein uh, eventually transferred to Swarthmore, but we stayed in touch. And it turned out that he was a cousin of a guy named Harry Weltman. And when the Carolina Cougars moved from Carolina to St. Louis for the 74-75 season of the ABA, the new owners of the team had tapped Harry Weltman, who had a background in sports and had played college basketball. They tapped him to be the president and general manager of the team. And so he reached out to Roger, who he knew had played high school basketball and loved basketball, and said, this is not going to be your career, but wouldn't this be fun for a few years if you worked with, with us at the Spirits? So Roger moves to St. Louis, takes some sort of front office job with the team, and then immediately calls me. And he says, they don't have an announcer. And I say, Roger, it's KMOX. I'm 22 years old and I look like I'm 15. I got no shot at this. He says, send a tape and I'll make sure that it gets listened to. And no lie, but I sent the very same tape of the game between Syracuse and Rutgers that had gotten me the hockey job a year before. I sent that to St. Louis. But before I did, I re-recorded it with the bass up and the treble down to make myself sound a little bit more mature, a little bit more authoritative. And then I also had an engineer friend of mine edit it so that any parts of it that weren't quite so good, they disappeared. But we had it in sequence. So it would be Syracuse with the ball, Rutgers with the ball. Uh, and if the score didn't seem to make sense based on what had just happened before, then we edited the score out. And it seemed like one consecutive 10 or 12 minute stretch. And it was pretty good. And what Roger did was, you know, things then were on reel-to-reel tapes, the heavy woolen sack tapes, because it was KMOX. They got some 200 applications, many from people with substantial broadcasting resumes. And Harry Weltman was out to lunch, and Roger took my tape, put the, uh, the tape through the, through the spool, and put it on Harry's desk. And when Harry came walking back through the door, as Roger tells the story, he said, Harry, listen to this. And he pushed the button. So Harry Weltman had no choice but to listen to my 10 or 12 minute tape. And he liked it. And he sent it off to the powers that be at KMOX, which included Jack Buck, who was the sports director of the station. And apparently they whittled these 200 tapes down to four or five. And I was among them. And they brought me in for an interview. And I thought, this is just a lark. This is ridiculous. There's no way in the world. When I met Jack Buck, I'm sure I was shaking. My gosh, Jack Buck? There's a chance that I could be at the same station as Jack Buck. But when I got back on the plane to Syracuse, I figured, well, this is just a good experience and something that will help me down the road. And a few days later, they called and said, the job is yours. And off I went to St. Louis. You recall how you celebrated that night? I do. As a matter of fact, I don't know if it was a celebration. The weatherman at WSYR, a guy named Bud Hedinger, was a big local star. And he was also the host of Bowling for Dollars, which followed uh, the 6 p.m. news. And 
his wife had had a baby, so he was gone that week. And I filled in on both the weather and bowling for dollars. So when I got the call, only a couple hours later, I was walking through a giant bowling pin, doing my best sort of Bob Barker or Bill Cullen sort of imitation as a, as a game show host. And I hosted Bowling for Dollars. And then I went back to an apartment I had across the street from the station. I'd left dorm life behind. And I packed up my stuff. And two days later, I was on a, a flight. I, I don't think you, had, you could get a direct flight from Syracuse to St. Louis, but some kind of connecting flight that took me to St. Louis. Bowling for Dollars. Ah, the glamour of show business. Yeah, Bowling for Dollars. And the big prize was if the person bowled a strike for him or herself and their pin pal, which they picked out of a giant drum so that they'd be, they are bowling for Mrs. Clara Jenkins of Manlius, New York. If the person managed to spare, then he and Clara split 50 bucks. But if he managed to strike, they split 100. There have been so many great books and documentaries about the ABA. Mm. Uh, this kind of classic moment in American sports history. Uh, so we could do hours and hours and hours just about the ABA. Is there a moment for you that stands out that kind of epitomizes what that experience was like? Well, the ABA was both glorious and ridiculous. Um, many of the teams were operating on threadbare budgets. For example, the last year of the league, the season started with 10 teams. Three of them folded because they knew that the league itself was in trouble. And we were down to seven teams by the end of the last ABA season, 75-76. And then four of those teams were taken in by the NBA, the Nets, the Pacers, the Nuggets, and the Spurs. And the Spirits were among the remaining three that disappeared. It was not at all uncommon, Bud for teams, including the spirits, because this happened a couple of times with me as a witness, to check into the hotel, let's say, in Denver for a game with the Nuggets the next night and being denied access to the rooms until they paid the bill from the last time the team was there. And so calls would go out to the controller of the team back in St. Louis. Can you wire the money? We, we owe them $3,800 or whatever it is for the team staying here the last time, and the team just sitting in the lobby until the matter was cleared up. Terry Pluto's oral history of the ABA, Loose Balls, is not only the best book about the ABA, it's one of the best sports books that you'll ever read. Um, and it's still out there in circulation somewhere. And it really captures the madcap aspect of the league. But at the same time, the quality of play was so high and yet it was kind of happening in a netherworld. We didn't have a national television contract. A lot of it was word of mouth, which leads to legend, by the way. The Dr. J of the NBA was an all-time great player. The Dr. J of the ABA was a legend because a lot of avid basketball fans either hadn't ever seen him or only saw him occasionally until he got to the NBA. But the best measure of this is that in the first year after the merger, half of the 10 starters in the NBA final between the 76ers and Trailblazers, five of the 10 had played in the ABA the year before. And 10 of the 24 players 
in the NBA All-Star game that season had been ABA players. So uh, it was kind of a point of pride. We sort of felt as if we were members of a secret fraternity and only those of us who actually were part of the ABA understood how wild and wonderful it was and understood how good it was uh, because we always felt like we were, we were the stepsister of the NBA. You're at Camo X in the 70s. You're doing the, the games uh, for as long as the league lasts. You're doing other things. For you personally, was there enough progress in your career during those years in the 70s? Or was there any notion of restlessness or where am I going to go next? Oh, my gosh, no. I was so thrilled at age 22 to be even a small part of what was arguably the best and most prestigious radio station in the country at that time, KMOX. Uh, the quality of broadcasters there, the sports staff alone could have actually filled half the slots on a network sports staff. And in fact, many of them did network broadcasts at one time or another. Harry Carey had been there. Joe Garagiola had been there. Dan Kelly, who was the Doc Emmerich of his time, the greatest hockey announcer of his time. And of course, Jack Buck and later Gary Bender and Dan Deardorff, while he was still playing for the Cardinals and before he became a network broadcaster, was doing work at KMOX. And then I had my little part there. So just to be on that roster was really heady stuff. And then only two years later, when I was just 24, I did my first network broadcasts for CBS. And only a few years after that, Don Olmeyer at NBC, who had seen some of the work I did for CBS, hired me. And I was just 27 when I signed my first contract with NBC. So there was never a time when I could have said, unless I'd completely lost my mind, that things had stalled for me. In fact, I was amazed at how well they continued to go for me. Bob Costas, there's so much more to discuss. So coming up in part two of our conversation, giving the eulogy at the funeral of his childhood sports hero, Mickey Mantle. We're all complex, some more than others. And Mickey was a combination of some beautiful and wonderful qualities and also some anguish and conflict and regret over, over things he could have done better, both as a ball player and as a person. And so my objective was to try and thread that needle. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13. This episode was produced and created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me too. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.